0: All right, so today I'd like to talk about power support to 16,000 in the Sacramento area after tree triggers outage, SMUD says. Power has been restored to roughly 16,000 customers Monday after a tree triggered an outage in Sacramento's eastern neighborhoods near Sacramento State, according to SMUD. The Sacramento Municipal Utility District reported at 2.34 p.m. that several thousand homes and businesses lost power in the campus commons areas and neighborhood west of Rosemont. Power was restored to the area around 3.50 p.m. A spokesman for SMUD said the outage was caused by tree rubbing power lines, not a rolling blackout due to the heat wave. Woodland hit by afternoon outage. An outage affecting 1,616 Woodland customers was caused by a transformer failure around 1.20 p.m. Monday, according to PGE. A spokesperson for Pacific Gas and Electric Company said that the outage is ongoing due to heat-related impacts. The Troubleman is on the way to the location and will arrive around 4.30 p.m. According to the spokesperson, pg e said they hope to restore power sometime tonight. Flex alerts continue amid heat wave. The state's electricity system is under intense demand due to the heat. Utilities were asking Californians to turn up their thermostats to 78 degrees late Monday afternoon into the early evening to save power. While SMUD's grid is not part of the independent system oper- operator, which called for the sixth flex alert in a row this evening between 5 and 10 p.m. The Sacramento-based utility had its hands full with near-record power demands. The ISO, which runs the electricity grid through most of California, declared a Stage 1 Emergency Alert Monday, a sign that supplies were turning increasingly tight as temperatures soared in the midst of a heat wave gripping California. Whether SMUD would be able to share power with ISO statewide system will have to be a game time decision, said smoke, smoke, spokeswoman Lindsay Von Leningham said earlier Monday. If we have extra, we will. And so I believe with this, all power has been restored at this point. Okay, right, so something I'd like to discuss today as well is Hurricane Ian destroyed sections of the Sanibel Causeway in Florida, cutting off access to the island community. And... This begins with multiple sections of a causeway connecting an island in southwestern Florida to the mainland collapsed into the Gulf of Mexico, leaving anyone who did not evacuate stranded as Hurricane Ian left a path of devastation through the state Wednesday. The Sanibel Causeway, which connects Sanibel Island to mainland Florida, is devastated. Florida Representative Byron Donald said Thursday on MSNBC. As the destruction left behind by Ian started coming into focus. We are counting five major breaches, he added. Earlier Thursday, NBC affiliate WBBH reported that approximately 50 to 65 feet of the causeway collapsed as Ian roared through Southwest Florida on Wednesday. The splitting of the bridge cuts off access to the island of roughly 6,700 people and where it remains unclear how many people did not evacuate ahead of the storm. Sanibel Mayor Holly Smith evacuated from her island community Tuesday night, knowing it could be hit by a storm surge. Smith said midday Wednesday that she was hoping that the causeway, the only path to and from her island, would survive Ian's destruction. But not all of Sanibel's residents evacuated, the mayor said. I wish it was fully evacuated. No, it is not. Smith said, I am aware of numerous individuals that decided to stay on the island. That's my main concern right now, is their safety shedded. I've been in touch with as many of them as I can be, and that's a very difficult position to be in when I'm sitting 15 miles away and knowing that a number of my citizenry might be in harm's way. And I believe the is not completed again, but it would seem to be something that would be worked on in the future. Hurricane Ian has since ended, and numbers are not... Um... Yeah. there's still a lot of rubble and destruction that's being sorted out. Okay, so something else I'd like to take a look at today is Biden's claim that pandemic is over complicates efforts to secure funding. It begins with President Biden's surprise declaration that the coronavirus pandemic is over. has thrown a wrench into the White House's efforts to secure additional funding to fight the virus and persuade Americans to get a new booster shot, while fueling more Republican criticism about why the administration continues to extend COVID emergency. Biden's comments which aired Sunday on 60 Minutes reflect growing public sentiment that the vi- that the threat of the virus has receded even as hundreds of Americans continue to die of COVID each day. 46% of Americans have returned to their pre-pandemic lives, according to an Axios poll released last week. The highest share of respondents answered that way since the pollsters began asking a question in January of 2021. We still have a problem with COVID, Biden said. We're still doing a lot of work on it, but the pandemic is over. Biden's remarks caught some senior officials off guard as the White House mounts a fall vaccination campaign, lobbies Congress for billions of dollars to purchase more coronavirus vaccines and treatments, and weighs whether to extend its ongoing public health emergency when it expires next month. The president's comments also triggered a sell-off on Wall Street as vaccine manufacturers Moderna, Novavax, BioNTech, and Pfizer collectively lost more than nine billion in value on Monday. In interviews, six administration officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to comment, said the president's statement would probably make it harder to persuade people to get shots or secure new money from Congress, noting those efforts have already lagged behind their goals. Outside supporters also criticized Biden for ignoring uncomfortable realities, such as the large and growing toll of long COVID. Some officials on Monday sought to add nuance to Biden's comments, seeking to praise the nation's progress while acknowledging the ongoing challenges. More than 30,000 people remain hospitalized with COVID and more than 400 are still dying each day to seven-day averages compiled by the Washington Post. Although we are much better off than we were months ago, as the president himself said, we still have a lot of work to do to get it down to a low enough level that we would feel comfortable with it. Anthony S. Fauci, the government's top infectious disease expert, said in an interview, I'm not comfortable with 400 deaths per day. Sarah Lovenheim, spokesperson for the department of health and human services reiterated that the public health emergency remains in effect and said the agency would provide a 60-day notice before ending it the administration for months has maintained that the virus is in retreat citing the growing availability of vaccines tests and treatments in the population's expanding immunity the white house has also begun transitioning some of its purchases of coronavirus tests and treatments to private insurers with the goal of shifting the cost of vaccines to patients by the bill next year Biden's remarks came at a moment when new daily infections are down to just over 57,000, the lowest they have been since late April, although that is probably a dramatic undercount since most people test themselves at home and do not report their infections to local and state health officials. Congressional Republicans on Monday cited Biden's comments as a reason not to support additional funding or other urgent steps to fight the virus and push the president to explain his policies. Senator Richard Burr, a Republican from North Carolina, the top Republican on the Senate's Health panel demanded to know when vaccination requirements for federal workers and co- contractors would be ended, and more federal staffers directed to return to the office in the letter sent to Biden and share with the Post. Without a clear plan to wind down pandemic-era policies, the deficit will continue to de- Balloon and the effectiveness of public health measures will wane as the American people continue to be confused by mixed messages and distrust of federal officials. First, Republicans also question why the administration would renew the public health emergency if the pandemic is over. That declaration has been used to streamline authorization of coronavirus vaccines and treatments and keep many Americans covered by Medicaid. The safety net. Health program. The Urban Institute, a think tank that conducts economic and social policy research, has estimated that as many as 15.8 million Americans could lose Medicaid coverage after the government ends the declaration. Since President Biden used his appearance on 60 Minutes to declare that COVID is over, he must immediately terminate the COVID 19 National Emergency Declaration, and wind down other emergency authorities that his administration continues to force us to live under. Senator Roger Marshall, a Republican from Kansas, said in a statement. The American people are fatigued and yearning to operate outside of the confines of a supersized government. Biden also invokes the COVID emergency last month to forgive student loan debt, citing a federal law that allows student loan rules to be modified during a crisis. The student loan plan is already facing challenges, and Republicans said that the president's remarks undercut his argument. In other words. There is no ongoing emergency to justify his proposal for student loan handouts. Senator Marsha Blackburn, a Republican from Tennessee, wrote on Twitter, but admitted last night that the COVID pandemic is over. Meanwhile, some of Biden's supporters and other outside experts criticized the president for seeming to play politics with public health. Nothing, nothing has made me more disgusted by our party than what the president said on 60 Minutes last night about the COVID-19 pandemic being over, Ye- epidemiologist Greg Gonzalez wrote on Twitter, We lead in overall COVID mortality and excess deaths among the G7. Life expectancy in the United States is down and has not rebounded. Hundreds of thousands of Americans are likely to suffer from long COVID and were grossly under-vaccinated and under-boosted as a country. Biden made his remarks to CBS News reporter Scott Pelley last week during an interview at the auto show in Detroit, referencing the crowds at the event. The annual auto show had not been held since 2019. If you notice no one's wearing masks, the president said everyone seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing, I, and I think this is a perfect example of it. J. Stephen Morrison, director of global health policy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, suggested that Biden was seeking to reassure virus worry Americans about 50 days before the midterm elections. It's a campaign message, Morrison said, is pretty consistent with a lot of the other messaging around the normalization of life. He's saying the pandemic is over psychologically and behaviorally. Many Americans remain wary of the virus, said Liz Hamill of Kaiser Family Foundation, a nonpartisan research group. Sending its July polling that found 39% of adults were still worried about serious illness and 44% of p- parents were worried about a child becoming seriously ill. I don't think we can say Americans have moved on from this completely, Hamill said. William Hanage, an epidemiologist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, said that COVID's impact remains remarkable, particularly when compared to other respiratory viruses. In the email, he noted that COVID has been linked to the deaths of about 80,000 Americans this summer, tens of thousands more than during the typical flu season. It is true that we have far fewer severe COVID infections, deaths, and healthcare utilization than in the past. It's also true that these numbers only look small because of what we have gotten used to. Inage added warning that cases could surge this winter. The head of the World Health Organization last week warned that the pandemic was not over and that important work remains to combat it around the world. We are not there yet, but the end is in sight, said Teros Arahom Chirib. Brady is director general of the world health organization. We can't see the finish line, but now is the worst time to stop running in the 60 minutes interview. Biden said the pandemic continues to exact a deep psychological toll. Think of how that has changed everything. The president said people's attitudes about themselves, their families and the state of the nation about the state of their communities. And yeah, so COVID-19 is still a pandemic. And, uh, yeah, there's some changing attitudes on some policies and the, you know, it's COVID-19 treated as a pandemic in the world that is one, but in the United States, what's the level of the severity? You know, is it as tough as a pandemic? So, yeah. Well, and today I'd like to talk about something. And what I'd like to talk about today is Nancy Pelosi's husband was violently assaulted during a home invasion, her office says. Washington House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, was violently assaulted early Friday by an assailant who broke into their home in San Francisco, according to a statement from her office. The suspect, who was taken into custody, attacked Paul Pelosi, 82, with a hammer, two people briefed on the incident told NBC News. Early this morning, an assailant broke into the Pelosi residence in San Francisco and violently assaulted Mr. Pelosi. The California Democrat spokesman Drew Hamill said the assailant is in custody and the motivation for attack is under investigation. Mr. Pelosi was taken to the hospital where he is receiving excellent medical care and is expected to make a full recovery. Hamill continued, San Francisco police responded to the scene just before 2.30 a.m. Pacific Time, Sergeant Adam Lobsinger, Tweeted, saying the chief of police, William Scott, would address the media. The House Speaker was not in San Francisco at the time of the attack, according to her office. United States Capitol Police said in a separate statement that Pelosi was in Washington District of Columbia with her protective detail at the time of the break-in. Hamill said Pelosi and her family are grateful to the first responders and medical professionals involved and request privacy at this time. The statement didn't provide any details on how the suspect broke into their home or what injuries Pelosi's husband might have sustained. Capitol Police said it is assisting the Federal Bureau of Investigation and San Francisco Police with a joint investigation into the home invasion and said the motivation for the attack is still under investigation. The agency also said special agents in its California field office quickly arrived on the scene while a team of investigators from the Department's threat assessment section was simultaneously dispatched from the East Coast. President Joe Biden called the Speaker Friday morning to express his support. White House Press Secretary Green John Pierre's in a statement. He is also very glad that a full recovery is expected. The President continues to condemn all violence and asks that the family's desire for privacy be respected, he said. The president continues to condemn all violence and asks that the family's desire for privacy be respected, she said. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York, said in a statement that he also spoke with the House Speaker, saying he conveyed my deepest concern and heartfelt wishes to her husband and their family. It's unclear what the motivations for the break-in and assault, though national leaders have warned of the potential for political violence, especially with the midterm elections less than two weeks away. Several lawmakers reacted to the incident, including Representative Jackie Speer, Democrat from California who tweeted that she's glad Pelosi's husband is safe. While the motive is still unknown, we know where this kind of violence is sanctioned and modeled, she said. Senator Chuck Grassley, a Republican from Iowa, tweeted, I wish Mr. Pelosi well and pray for a quick recovery. Everyone deserves to be respected and violence is never okay. I'm hoping and praying Paul Pelosi is okay. I'm outraged the Speaker and her family are going through this. This is cowardly disgusting and disgraceful Representative Bill Pascal. A Democrat from New Jersey tweeted, in August, Representative Eric Swalwell, a Democrat from California, said a man called his office repeating homophobic slurs and threatening to shoot and kill the congressman. Swalwell, who has previously tweeted about threats to his office, wrote, bloodshed is coming. Close. Sees. Home was vandalized last January, just a few days before the January 6th attack on the Capitol, as was the home of then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky. Pelosi's garage door was faced with phrases including $2,000, cancel rent, and we want everything. This came several days after Congress failed to approve a measure to increase coronavirus stimulus checks to $2,000. Hello everyone, and welcome to today. Today, something I want to talk about, and I'll be talking about possibly multiple perspectives about this in this episode and possibly in future episodes, is no on California Proposition 1, encourage our leaders to find real solutions to abortion. Proposition 1 on the November 8th ballot dubbed the Right to Reproductive Freedom Amendment asks California voters to amend the state's constitution to prohibit the state from interfering with or denying an individual's reproductive freedom, defined as a right to an abortion and a right to contraceptives. Here, two essays explore both sides of the issue. Allegria is the Director of Development of Pregnancy Care Clinic and a governing board member at the Cajun Valley Union School District. She lives in El Cajun, This commentary does not represent the opinion of the board or the district. As a teenager, I took risks. My sights were set on a fantastical romance and being swept off my feet to escape a difficult family life. But soon, I found myself alone, scared, pregnant, facing life-changing decisions. At the time I turned to Planned Parenthood, they presented me with two choices, parenting or abortion. Abortion seemed to be the right path. Ideal, private, secret, and discreet. My abortion was scheduled at over 20 weeks gestation. Similar to now, parental consent was not necessary for abortion to be performed on minors in California during the 1980s. You could walk in and out of the clinic the same day and no one would know. A few days later, I painfully labored in my bathroom, realizing I had delivered the unexpected remnants of a partially aborted baby. Forty years later, I began to realize the havoc this ideal private, secret, and discreet decision was reeking in my life and the lives around me i never dealt with the lifetime of raising my child but rather a lifetime of emotional turmoil for taking the life of an individual my baby the proposed amendment to the california constitution through proposition 1 on november's ballot reads the state shall not deny or interfere with an individual's reproductive freedom in their most intimate decisions which includes their fundamental right to choose to have an abortion and their fundamental right to choose or refute contraceptives this amendment should raise questions. All. Doesn't our state constitution already protect our privacy in this space? It does. How do we define the term individual? How do we determine what is a fundamental right? Are some rights more important than others? Are all, all fundamental rights equal? Hard questions to answer. Yet we are not asking these questions. Instead, the supreme, instead the questions asked by the legislators are, how do we respond to the United States Supreme Court's June decision overturning Roe v. Wade? How do we turn out voters in the November election? How do we make headlines? I'll miss the mark. Shouldn't our leaders be asking, how do we render abortion unnecessary? How do we support desperate men and women like myself so they can make informed decisions about their baby? Truthfully, humanity is based on individual existence, and to exist, we must be alive. We become individuals by a unique biological process known as human reproduction. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines an individual as a particular being or thing as distinguished from a class, species, or collection. Human reproduction delivers on its own promise in the creation of an individual who contains its own beating heart, its own skeletal structure, its own nervous system, and even reproductive functions. In the 2014 report for the Charlotte Lozier Institute titled A Scientific View of When Life Begins, Marine Conduct states one of the basic insights of modern biology is Life is continuous with living cells giving rise to new types of cells and ultimately to new individuals. Therefore, in considering the question of when a new human life begins, we must first address the more fundamental question of when a new cell distinct from sperm and egg egg, comes into existence. The conclusion that human life begins at sperm egg fusion is uncontested. For 17 years, I've worked in our local pregnancy care clinic. Every day we walk Individuals through desperation offer pregnancy tests, birthing and parenting classes, adoptive choices, parenting support groups, material needs such as diapers, formula, wipes and maternity and baby clothes. These services are provided free of charge. We support both men and women through the trauma of abortion into healing and freedom. Commonly, abortions occur because of convenience as a quick relief for unintended pregnancies. However, having walked through the pain and trauma of my own abortion, I serve as a daily witness to lives in psychological torment that have nowhere to place the shame and guilt about their aborted children, and I have grieved with men in our climate over the children they never had the uh, opportunity to parent. We should ask ourselves: Could the broken-hearted, downtrodden, homeless, and addicted people we see day after day be the systematic cause of ignoring the truth about abortion? I hope, as a governing board, member of the Cajun Valley Union School District is to continue the focus on uplifting students and encouraging confidence. We teach the importance of maintaining healthy relationships, provide positive outlets for children and teams to experience the joyous opportunities of the youth, direct their past to the brightest future possible. I hope the voters in our state see through the politics and don't just accept the status quo. Voters should encourage our leaders to find real solutions to abortion, not just words on paper, and work like I have to prevent abortion. Okay, so another thing I'm going to share today, which is another perspective on this issue. California ballot measure to guarantee right to abortion has strong support among voters. Poll finds. An overwhelming majority of California voters have abortion on their minds as the November election approaches, according to a poll released Wednesday that also shows strong support for a ballot measure responding to the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. More than 80% of registered voters consider abortion to be an To be important, in the upcoming election, and 71% plan to vote for Proposition 1, an amendment to the California Constitution that would prohibit the state from interfering with a woman's right to an abortion and guarantees access to contraceptives, according to the poll from the the United States Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies. It's a reflection of the deep support for abortion rights in California as many other states begin to impose restrictions on the practice following the June 24th Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Proposition 1 supporters welcomed the poll results but warned that abortion rights activists shouldn't get complacent. While well, the numbers released today are encouraging, we cannot leave anything to chance said State Senate President Pro Tem Tony Atkins, a Democrat from San Diego, co-chair of the Yes on Proposition 1 campaign. More than ever, we need voters to turn out and say yes on Proposition 1 to set an example for the rest of the country that... Abortion is a fundamental right and should be protected as such in our Constitution. Abortion is widely expected to be a major motivating factor in the midterms this year. In California, which has some of the most liberal reproductive rights policies in the nation, the Supreme Court's decision generated a ferocious backlash and inspired a coordinated campaign to increase abortion access for both Californians and those seeking help from out of state. The decision by state lawmakers to place Proposition 1 on the ballot has the potential to drive up turnout for Democrats, and some speculate it could affect the outcome of a handful of tight congressional races in the Golden State amid the strong feelings on the issue reflected in the poll. The survey conducted August 9th to August 15th among 9,254 California registered voters found 68% disapprove of the Supreme Court decision that overturned the right to abortion in the United States Constitution. Support for Proposition One had solid majorities of support across all regions, ages, and ethnicities, but splinters along party lines. Democrats support the measure 89% to 5%, while 35% of Republicans were in favor. No-party preference voters who, who make up nearly a quarter of the state's electorate backed the measure 74% to 14%. The poll also found robust support for new policies California lawmakers took in the immediate wake of the Supreme Court's decision. 65% of respondents said they approve of laws signed by the governor that aim to help out-of-state women obtain abortions in California. So another perspective on this issue, um, today I'd like to share something called Fix the Fatal Flaw in SCA 10. So the overview of this is the the reproductive choice rights in the United States Supreme The United States Supreme Court recognized about almost 50 years ago rely on two unwritten fundamental rights to privacy and liberty interests in retaining control of one's body. With the United States Supreme Court poised to abrogate those rights in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, Californians will retain their state constitutional rights and statutory protections for reproductive liberty. Yet those California constitutional rights rely on a similar foundation judicial interpretations of California's textual context. Constitutional privacy right. That leaves the state constitutional protection for reproductive liberty vulnerable to the same judicial re- reinterpretation that federal abortion doctrine currently faces. Thus, a measure to have reproductive liberty to California's constitution as SCA 101, is a variety of, but it must specify the rights being codified. Otherwise, a change in California's bench could bring a state version of Dobbs. It will be right back where we started. So, analysis of this is... Um, the flaw in SCA 10 and how to fix it. Anticipating a ruling in Dobbs that ends federal constitutional protection for abortion, California's legislature responded with with a proposed California constitutional amendment. SCA 10 will appear on the November t- 2022 and recommend. The voters add New Article 1, Section 1.1. The state shall not deny or interfere with an individual's reproductive freedom in their most intimate decisions, which includes their fundamental right to choose to have an abortion and their fundamental right to choose or refuse contraceptives. This section is intended to further the constitutional right to privacy guaranteed by Section 1 and the constitutional right to not be denied equal protection guaranteed by Section 7. Nothing here narrows or limits the right to privacy or equal protection. This is similar to the Vermont legislatively proposed constitutional amendment PR5. As the political California playbook noted, SCA 10 is sailing towards an appearance on the November ballot after passing the Senate with near democratic unanimity. The primary problem is that Section 1.1 creates an interpretation issue for future courts that must consider the new section's meaning without any. Supporting federal doctrine, the CA 10 makes no reference to Griswold versus Connecticut, Roe versus Wade, or Planned Parenthood versus, versus Casey, so it neither defines nor incorporates the careful balance those decisions struck between the compelling interests. Failing to reference existing law will leave future courts with a conundrum. The voters will, we expect, enact the amendment in November 2022, but Dobbs will have done its work months before, so court cannot conclude that the voters intended to reference non-existent federal law. That will spark renewed litigation about when the right to choose must be give must give way to the state's interest in potential life. Expressly incorporating federal law as it stands now solves that problem. Casey sets the line of viability. All SCA 10 needs is language to this effect. This section is intended to protect and codify existing laws of June 1st, 2022 that incorporates the key federal decisions and the rights protecting framework as they exist before Dobbs invalidates them. True, California's Reproductive Privacy Act, RPA, incorporates the constitutional lines drawn in Casey, but the proposed constitutional amendment itself does not. Under the Reproductive Privacy Act, no law may deny or interfere with the woman's right to choose or obtain an abortion prior to viability of the fetus. Consistent with Roe and Casey, the Reproductive Privacy Act defines California as a reasonable likelihood of the fetus's sustained survival outside the uterus without the application of extraordinary medical measures. Even referencing the Reproductive Privacy Act in SCA 10 would be an improvement, but failing to codify existing law in Article 1, Section 1.1 creates the risk that a court reviewing the new section could find it unnecessary to confront the constitutional interpretation question because the statutory remedy is adequate. This leaves the new constitutional provision a nullity. The fact that California already has robust protections for individual liberty and the right to privacy makes matters worse for SCA 10. That's because Dobbs will remove the federal form of reproductive rights, and SCA 10 adds nothing new to existing California abortion rights. For example, California only prohibits abortions after the point of viability, except in cases where a physician makes a good faith medical judgment that continuing a pregnancy after the point of viability will pose a risk to the safety or health of the mother. SCA 10 says nothing about either codifying or modifying that law, which again leaves the reviewing court with the conclusion that the new section adds nothing to existing California law. The secondary problem is that the failure to mention existing law untethers the new section from its legal foundation and so jeopardizes other fundamental rights that rely on the same foundation as reproductive rights. California's constitutional abortion rights rest on the same privacy and liberty analysis that federal law currently does. Abrogating the federal doctrine makes it much more likely that a California court will revisit California's doctrine under the state's cogent reasons standard which requires California courts to follow federal constitutional law absent a good reason for departure future California court could find that California constitutional abortion rights depend on the state's constitutional privacy provision article 161 and then locks up California constitutional privacy to federal constitutional privacy which does not support abortion rights this would end California's constitutional abortion rights finally a tertiary problem is that the same privacy analysis supports the rights to engage in consensual sexual relations and to marry for same-sex couples. Just as those federal decisions are at risk, if federal privacy doctrine changes, so will California's decision that rely on privacy doctrines become suspect. Future federal decisions and laws can be even worse for California abortion rights. Even if SCA 10 solved those problems, future United States Supreme Court decisions and acts of Congress may still limit abortion rights in California. Federal authority can do so by imposing a ceiling on California law under the Supremacy Clause. As a sovereign state, California can enshrine individual rights in its Constitution. When the federal Constitution confers protection to an analogous individual right that sets the floor, and states may always provide greater protection to those individual rights. Federal law, at least for the next week or so, protects certain abortion rights, and California could use its constitutional rights to privacy and liberty to also recognize reproductive choice rights. Just so, California case law provides that the state's constitution provides greater protection for women's right to choose. A federal law can also impose a ceiling and bar states from further action. It could do so by establishing federal constitutional protection for a fetus. If the United States Supreme Court reads the federal constitution to grant fetal rights before viability outside the womb, that would create a federal law ceiling and bar states from using any competing individual interest to grant abortion rights under the California Constitution. The California Supreme Court has already identified and balanced this com- repeating interest in procreative choices. Abortion presents a conflict between the individual's right to autonomy and the state's interest in the unborn. Under California law, the individual's constitutional rights outweigh the state's interest in the unborn. But if the United States Supreme Court adds a new factor and unborn's federal constitutional right to life, then SCA 10 will fail. Well, oh, but if the United States Supreme Court adds a new factor and unborn's federal constitutional right to life, then SCA 10 will fall. SCA 10 is at least relatively safe from other challenges. The proposed amendment presents some policy and litigation challenges that are significant, but unlikely to be fatal. For example, proponents of SCA 10 have embraced and touted the idea of California serving as a sanctuary for women seeking abortion care restrictive states. Groups worry about the potential for California resources to become overburdened. People from other states come to California to seek abortions. Once Roe and Casey are overturned, the number of Women for whom the nearest abortion provider would be California could increase by 3,000% from about 46,000 to 1.4 million. That raises two concerns. How will California pay for these services? And can other states impose liability on California for providing them to their residents? SB 1142 attempts to solve the funding problem by creating a state run fund paid for by donations from private citizens to pay for women traveling to the state. The bill defines the covered practical support as airfare, lodging, ground transportation, gas money, meals, dependent child care, support, and translation services to help a person access and obtain an abortion. Even so, many women may still be unable to pay for their medical procedures, leaving California to foot the bill. Governor Gavin Newsom addressed these concerns. Governor Gavin Newsom addressed that concern by allocating $125 million of additional funding in the coming fiscal year for abortion services. Of course, California's record budget surplus this year seems likely to repeat next year, so that may be a short-term solution to a longer-term issue. On the legal issues, it seems unlikely that other states or the federal government would have standing to sue California for providing abortion services to residents of states. To have more restrictive abortion laws, federal lawsuits against California sanctuary state policies suggest how such a lawsuit might play out. In February 2020, the United States Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against California and two other states over their immigration sanctuary policies, which generally restricted how state and local law enforcement officers shared information with federal authorities regarding a person's immigration status. The Department of Justice argued that California's sanctuary laws were unconstitutional, superseded by federal immigration laws, and obstructed the federal government's ability to enforce federal laws. California won the first case filed by the Department of Justice in 2018. California won a second case in the Ninth Circuit, and the Supreme Court declined to take that case. And SB 1142 has key differences from California sanctuary laws that make it even more defensible in the immigration context the sanctuary aspect of the law. Relates to restrictions on states and local law enforcement sharing information with the federal government. SB 1142 would create a state fund. SB 1142 would create a state-run fund to collect donations from private citizens to help pay for a woman to travel to California and fund her legal fees. To fund a tax by her home state, the federal government would struggle to make the same arguments against SB 1142 that it did against the sanctuary laws. For example. Assuming Dobbs simply removes the federal floor for reproductive rights, the federal government cannot argue that SCP-1142 is superseded by federal law. Other states similarly would struggle to escape pleading state challenges. The United States Supreme Court has exclusive jurisdiction over disputes between states, but it is unlikely that the court would claim jurisdiction over controversy. Between California and another state in this context, the court has declined to hear similar cases where states attempted to enjoin other states from creating and enforcing their own laws and restrictions, even if those laws would have interstate ramifications. Conclusion. SCA 10 needs new language making clear that it codifies Roe, Casey, and Griswold, feeling that there is substantial risk that the new California constitutional provision will either be interrupted by courts to have no effect or that its underpinnings will be erased. The other policy and litigation risk can be overcome, but absent any link to existing abortion law, SCA 10 may be nothing more than an empty promise. So today I'd like to share yet another perspective on this issue. Um, we'll be going through the V word. Proposition 1 revives historic abortion debate over viability in California. As soon as the leaked United States Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade published in May threatened the federal right to abortion, California Democrats went to work writing an amendment to the state's constitution explicitly protecting the right to an abortion here. Californians will vote on the amendment in the form of Proposition 1 come November, but as the election approaches, lawmakers still do not agree whether the measure would merely enshrine abortion rights, as they are currently articulated in state law, which allows abortion up to 24 weeks, or whether it would expand abortion rights so as to permit abortion at any point in pregnancy. For any reason. Throughout the legislative debate over the amendment, there were several awkward moments when Democrats were stumped by this question from Republicans, most notably when Assemblymember Kevin Kiley, a Republican from Rockland, posed it point blank before the final vote in June. California law generally bars the performance of an abortion past the point of fetal viability, he said. Would this constitutional amendment change that? The floor went quiet. For a full 30 seconds, no one said anything. Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon whispered with his co- with colleagues, asked how the question repeated, and then promised to answer later. He never did. Viability has long been a controversial concept, plaguing ethicists on both sides of the abortion debate since it was embedded in the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. The Supreme Court Justice wrote that a woman's right to bodily autonomy and privacy were protected only up to viability, the point when a fetus is capable of meaningful life outside the mother's womb, which the court said occurs between 24 and 28 weeks after conception. Since then, many doctors have bemoaned the legal and political bastardization of the medical concept, arguing viability is much more complex than just gestational age alone, but the public has clung to it with abortion rights opponents and supporters both looking favorably on restricting access to the procedure later in pregnancy. Current California law incorporates the viability limit from Roe, allowing abortion for any reason through the second trimester and and after that only if the mother or fetus's health is in danger. But the constitutional amendment outlined in Proposition 1 doesn't mention the word viability anywhere. Even among legal scholars, there is no consensus as to whether that means the viability standard will remain if Proposition 1 is approved or if time limits on abortion will be eradicated in California. It at least opens the door, said said University of California Davis Law professor Mary Ziegler noting that courts are likely to make the final interpretation of Proposition 1 after the election if it's approved. The V-Word debate revived when Assemblymember James Gallagher, a Republican from Chico, spoke during the final floor debate in June. His voice with emotion. He could not support the state's constitutional amendment on abortion because of what's missing from it, he said. He even choked up at one point talking about his twin boys, who were born two and a half months premature and almost needed heart surgery in utero. They were alive and they were people, he repeated throughout his speech. Pointing at the lectern for emphasis each time you mentioned the development of fetuses, 18 weeks, 23 weeks, 30 weeks. With no time limits or restrictions on a woman's right to an abortion, Gallagher said the amendment did nothing to protect the rights of the fetus. Babies like my twins at 30 weeks, their lives could be taken, and I don't think that's the right balance. He said we can do better. Proponents of Proposition 1 have said that the intention of the amendment was only to preserve the status quo. When various committee hearings, the bill supporters seemed confused by the language of their own bill at times. It's to answer questions definitively about whether the amendment would preserve the viability limit or discard it. But doctors who were involved in drafting law, like Dr. Pratima Gupta, say that was no mistake. They left the word viability out on purpose. Every pregnancy is individual and it's a continuum, said Gupta and OBGYN in San Diego. People come into pregnancy with a range of pre-existing health conditions, she said. Like diabetes, anemia, high blood pressure, and obesity, they may not have much money or access to good medical care with the latest technology. All these very nuanced factors and not some arbitrary number determine whether a fetus is viable, she said. If I see a patient who has broken their bag of water at 23 weeks of pregnancy, that doesn't mean that it's viable or not viable, she said. Doctors who consulted on the amendment were following the lead of the American College of Obstetricians and Genealogists. Um, I don't know, the leading advisor group for OBGYNs, which is, wait, no. Doctors who consulted on the amendment were f- following the lead of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the leading advisor group for OBGYNs, which itself removed the term viability from its own guidance on abortion last May. The term has become so politicized that it barely has any medical meaning anymore. The group said in deciding whether and when to have an abortion should be left to the patient and doctor. The demise of Roe versus Wade in a strange way is what has freed doctors of the figures of the 5LA framework as it was outlined in Roe. The Supreme Court could put an end to 50 years of constitutional protections for abortion, doctors seem to be saying. The court could take all the flaws of the decision with it. In a world where there is no Roe, I think you're seeing... California legislators trying to write into law a kind of blank slate, a better idea of what reproductive autonomy could be that isn't just row Part 2, Ziegler said. Why women get abortions later in pregnancy? A reason here is at least three other states have removed viability and gestational age limits from their abortion laws. Colorado, New Jersey, Vermont, and Washington District of Columbia now allow abortion through pregnancy. Abortion opponents argue that if California follows suit by passing abortion Abortion opponents argue that if California follows suit by passing Proposition 1, it will be a free-for-all with women lining up for abortions when they're eight months pregnant for no reason at all. We already currently have abortion up to 24 weeks. Why do we need to push it beyond that? So Jonathan Keller president and CEO of the California Family Council, a religious nonprofit, aren't we able to say that this is a step too far even for California? Uh, research indicates that scenarios are a fantasy. Abortions at or after 21 weeks are extremely rare, representing only 1.2% of all abortions, according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Their study showed that the reasons women seek abortions at this time in pregnancy are varied. But it, it is primarily because of the medical complications where pregnancy is de- desired, but the mother finds out late about a complication that puts her own life at risk or fetal abnormality. That will make it impossible for the baby to survive after birth. Increasingly, women face legal and logistical barriers that make it difficult for them to access abortion care as early as they want to, this is Elizabeth Nash, a policy analyst at the Matcher Institute research organization focused on reproductive rights. As more states ban the procedure in the wake of the Supreme Court, viscerating Roe, fewer clinics offer it. The timing is not always up to the patient, particularly now. And said it may be that they're delayed because there are lots of restrictions they have to comply with. It may be because they need to travel for an abortion. It may be that they can't get time off work. It maybe that they can't get time off of work. Women have may have trouble raising the money they need to pay for the procedure, or they may have an abusive partner who loses control over their decisions and movements. And maybe that they don't recognize that there's pregnant. Nash said still even in a state like California that champions abortion rights and is even positioning itself as an abortion sanctuary, voters are more uncomfortable with the procedure the later it gets in pregnancy. poll showed only 13% of voters said they were okay with abortion through third trimester. But when it comes to securing abortion rights in general, through Proposition 1, 71% of Californians said they're going to vote for it. The politics of viability have changed, said the law of Professor Ziegler. With the Supreme Court toppling the federal right to abortion and more than half the states banning or trying to ban the procedure, Ziegler said, these viability arguments that had previously been compelling for decades don't land the same way. The polls indicate voters are not inclined to pick right now. Ziegler predicts that they'll accept the ambiguity in Proposition 1 and let the court sort out the details later. Today, I'd also like to share yet another perspective on this issue. Skelton, would California abortion ballot measure allow late-term abortions? Based on a simple reading, Proposition 1 would seem to push California abortion law far left by allowing pregnancy termination right up to birth. Could that be correct? No, that's a false read according to the legislation's author and two law professors. The measure on the November ballot merely cements into the state constitution current law, they say. The language sure doesn't read that way to most voters, I suspect, at least to those of us who aren't lawyers. It says the state cannot restrict abortion any abortion period. Read for yourself. The state shall not deny or interfere with an individual's reproductive freedom and their most intimate decisions, which includes their fundamental right to choose to have an abortion and their fundamental right to choose or refute contraceptives. Another sentence states that the measure is intended to further the constitutional right to privacy and the constitutional right not to be denied equal protection, which have been interpreted to protect abortion rights. The first sentence seems to be for guaranteeing unrestricted late-term abortions. Current law states that once a fetus is considered viable, able to survive outside the uterus without extraordinary medical measures. Women can obtain an abortion only if continued pregnancy poses a significant risk to her health or life. Viability is around 23 weeks. So-called partial birth abortions are illegal in California and throughout the United States. The proposition's language seemingly would in current third-trimester restrictions, and even if that's convincingly refuted, it has the potential to be, of becoming a false central campaign issue. Proposition 1 is the primary response of California Democrats and abortion rights activists to the United States Supreme Court's overturning Roe v. Wade. The 1973 ruling that legitimized pregnancy terminations nationwide, the court turned the issue over to states to determine their own abortion laws that roughly half have eliminated or severely restricted abortion rights. California has gone the opposite direction, spending more than $200 million to expand services and provide a sanctuary for abortion seekers from other states. I think they're overstepped, asserts Ray McNally, strategies for the proposition's opponents. It's the most extreme abortion law that you could put into the Constitution. There's no limit on late-term abortion. They can occur at any time for any reason up to the moment of birth. Most Californians support some reasonable limits. It continues down the road. It'll just be one more instance when voters thought they were doing the right thing and that they were hornswoggled. It feels it feels cynicism and bitterness and mistrust in government. The constitutional amendments author, state senator Le- Senate leader Tony Atkins, the Democrat from San Diego, flatly denies that current changes current law regarding viability. The false narrative about abortions up to up until birth are unscientific and create to politicize the conversation about abortions. He said in a statement after legislature passed the measure mostly along party lines, Democrats for and Republicans against. But during four debates in both houses, queries about late-term abortions resulted in fuzzy replies. Basically, they were kissed off. I called two law professors who specialize in abortion regulations, and both said that Proposition One's language isn't the end of the story. There's more that meets the eye. Constitutional amendments, whether federal or state, are generally are, are, are subject to court interpretation guided by legislative intent and precedent. They said, generally speaking, constitutional language tends to be more aspirational language of principles and broad rights. With more detailed rules written in statutes, said Loyola Law School professor Britta Clark, expert on health care law, constitutional rights are never absolute. They always allow some restrictions She continued, What this constitutional amendment is doing is tracking language that has already been interpreted by the state Supreme Court in a way that absolutely allows some restriction. University of California, Los Angeles Law School professor Kerry Franklin Faculty director of the Center on Reproductive Health Law and Policy agreed that a constitutional right is not an absolute right. This is going to be able to limit the abortion right. Mike Madrid, a Republican political consultant who specializes in the Latino voter trends, told me that many Latinos may have a tough time accepting Proposition One. Latinos are more anti-abortion than most groups. He said they're more Catholic than other groups, but he added, "I don't think it will affect the outcome of the measure. It's affect how big the win is." Agreed if there's any effect at all. This is a deep blue state with a long history of supporting abortion rights. Proposition one should be passed for no other reason than to record California's strong opposition to the overreaching Supreme Court decision. But drafters should have made clear in the measures and language that it was permissible to limit abortion after Fetus reaches viability. Okay, so something else I wanted to share today. Um, I believe this will be one of the final perspectives I have on this issue, but it's open prayer California Church's Bell Abortion Ballot Measure. In summary, religious opponents of abortion led by the Catholic Church are mobilizing against Proposition 1 on the November 8th ballot. The numbers in fundraising and in the polls are against them. From the pulpit of the bright and airy Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove, Father Tai delivered a homily on a recent Sarah- Sunday morning, urging his congregation to vote against Proposition 1, a measure on the November 8th ballot that would enshrine the right to an abortion in California's Constitution. Stewart is entrusted to care for the master's property until his return. He preached what precious goods... Has the career placed in our care? Did they include the innocent, sacred lives of the unborn and children to be born? A few weeks earlier at Good Shepherd Catholic Church in Pacifica, two congregants spoke at weekend masses to ask attendees to support the campaign against the harmful proposition, one with prayers, fasting, and money. Bishops and other clergy from California's dozen Catholic dioceses and archdioceses, spanning Sacramento, Fresno, Monterey, and San Bernardino have Release videos to speak directly to the faithful, sometimes in multiple languages, about their concerns that the initiative remove all existing restrictions on abortion in the state. Life is precious from the very moment of conception, Father Michael Mahoney of Our Lady of Angels Parish in Burlingame said in a recent message filmed at the site of a future parish garden. We encourage families to take home no Prop 1 signs for the yards. This is against everything that we believe in as Catholics. Fundraising by the opposition campaign is trailing significantly in a state where a clear majority of adults regularly express support for abortion rights. The successful long-shot effort to defeat Proposition 1 may rest primarily on outreach by faith leaders and their ability to mobilize followers from the queues to the polls. About a month before Election Day, as male ballots are set to begin arriving at the homes of Every registered voter in California, officials across several major denominations are tapping into their networks of worshippers to get the word out against the abortion measure. Meanwhile, some conservative faith-based political groups are organizing voters to involve their churches in the campaign. Though not legally allowed to endorse partisan candidates because of their tax-exempt status, churches can advocate on issues including ballot measures. Finding egregious expansion of abortion, the most significant push so far has come from the Catholic Church. Over the summer, it started training clergy and parishioners, registering voters, and developing educational resources about Proposition 1, which it calls the most egregious expansion of abortion this country has ever seen. And I believe that's where I'm going to leave it for. Now, in the next episode, we'll continue this issue and possibly look at some more issues.